Well, when I was a child, <laughs> um, I, you know, it's sort of one of these moments I remember with my dad. And uh, I remember him saying, Danny, I want you to always remember this. And unfortunately, that's how my dad talked. And he said, there are two kinds of people in the world. There are kachikases, and there are people who wish they were kachikases. And I remember that did make a little bit of an impact on me for a couple of reasons. First, it was funny. And second of all, I realized that, yes, we had to make some excuse for our name. Uh, there had to be some built-up pride or something about being called Kachikas, right? Um, and then later on in life, I heard another thing that was similar to that, and it went something like this. There are, in fact, two kinds of people in the world. There are those who break people into two groups, and there are those who don't. Think about that one. But it is important that we kind of understand where we are, who we are, and what we are, in all of this. And so in going into today's um, topic, talking about the church at Pergamum, uh, I want to back up just a little bit and just ask the question, why in the book of Revelation we would have it begin with talking about seven churches? I mean, because here's the thing that you know about the book of Revelation. It really has to do with something that is about the Jews. Daniel, in the book of Daniel, was told by the angel Gabriel that there would be 70 weeks of years. And the way they got broke down, uh, it ended sort of at the 69th week with Jesus coming in in the triumphant entry. That was the end of the 69th week. The last week for Israel is basically the book of Revelation. You realize that from chapter 4 to the end of chapter 19, this is all about that seven-year period and how it's going to develop and everything. And we'll be getting into that, and it'll be exciting and everything. So there are only six chapters having to do with anything else, and three of those chapters have to do, at least two of them, um, with the church. So the question would be, why in the world is the church right there at the beginning in the book of Revelation? And so, like I said, I'll try to go into that a little bit. Now, Lewisbury Chafer in his, theolo uh, his systematic theology, long systematic theology, right at the beginning in the preface, uh, in those pages that don't really even have numbers, they're V's and, and I's. And some of you know what those mean. I never could get into Roman numerals. So the thing is, he says, and he says very interestingly, that the student of theology should read that preference. He says, in fact, they should read it a couple times. They should really understand the preference. He said, because understanding where we are in terms of God's plan is important to understanding anything theologically. Anything that the Bible is explaining, he's saying, really has to do with God's plan and where we are in that plan. Understanding God's plan for the ages. And it, that really is important because the church, after almost 2,000 years, you realize that the church is going to be 2,000 years, and depending upon how you do the numbers, in either 10 years or 13 years. In 13 years, the church will be 2,000 years old. What in the world is the church doing? 
What is God's plan for us in terms of his plan for the ages, his plan for Israel, etc.? It's really good to know that. And important in that also is our lives in the church. Because that may be the bigger picture, but the smaller picture is how we live our lives every day as part of that church. And so that's kind of what we're going to be talking about. And Chafer says, we really need to understand that. And I think that that understanding of who the church is, where they are in God's plan, is important in the book of Revelation. Why we are at this particular place and why we're talking about churches here. So... When God made people, people gravitated and became groups of people. And in the, in, in the Bible text, you will find it talking about peoples or nations. And the interesting thing about talking about these nations, and we'll talk about, say, after the flood, because we know there were people before the flood. But after the flood, people clumped together, right? And God had to divide them with the languages. But what's so interesting, that word, nations or peoples, is exactly the same word the Jews use for Gentiles. And whether it's in the Greek or in the Hebrew, the same word that's used for nations is the same word that's used for Gentiles. So we're talking about Gentiles. And Chafer says, so none of this is really original with me, he says that for 2,000 years, the world was all about the development of nations. It was all about the Gentiles, if you want to put it that way. There were no other portions of humanity, just that. Now, this is what's interesting about it, is that we know that we're lost, and we know that the nations are lost, and if any of us are good readers of the Bible, we realize that there is something going on there. And I I just want to draw your attention to this These verses, very important verses, but you don't have to go there in your Bible unless you really want to because your translation will probably be a little bit different. When Moses, at the end of Deuteronomy, you know where Deuteronomy is, right? It's it's sort of at the end of his five books. So the children of Israel have gone through 40 years in the wilderness. And this is the legacy of Abraham. God is building the nation here. He gets to chapter 32, and then right out of the box, he says something that is so unusual. But it kind of puts time in perspective. In Deuteronomy 32, he says, When the Most High gave the nations their inheritance... When he separated the sons of men, he fixed the bounds of the people according to the number of the sons of God. Now, the reason I said that about the translation is that the RSV and maybe one other are the only translations I have found that translate that sons of God. You might actually have a note that it could be translated sons of God. The Septuagint, the Greek Bible that Jesus had, translated that the angels of God. In the Hebrew, depending upon what text you look at, it says the sons of God. Now, here's a kind of a quizzical question. It's saying here that the nations were divided among, I'm going to say the sons of God or the Septuagint, the angels of God. Now, what do we know about that? Where do you find the the term sons of God in the Bible? Genesis chapter 6, right? Ooh, spooky chapter in the Bible. Because it talks about the sons of God there. Where is another place you hear about the sons of God? The book of Job. And it's like, whenever I read the book of Job, I say, God, you know, if you ever get in a conversation with Satan, don't bring up my name. 
Because, see, the sons of God are reporting to God. And it appears that God has a conversation with the leader. Now, what all of this is working to, and I'll read the rest of this in a minute, is that the nations have been divided among the angels of God. We kind of get this idea. When Jesus is talking to Satan, Satan says to him, I have authority over all nations, and I can give them to whomever I please. Jesus never argues with Satan on this one. Jesus calls Satan the ruler of this world. Now, in Ezekiel, when it talks about Satan there, in that spooky passage, it calls him the covering cherub. The word covering is guardian. It appears that Satan was a guardian angel. And having to watch over and serve mankind wasn't what he wanted, but when mankind sinned, his guardianship turned into authority. Uh, So this is reading through the whole Bible, but what it does mean is that the nations... When Paul even talks about the God of this world, about principalities and powers, the nations, we get to Daniel, right? And that angel that finally gets to Daniel, he says, I was fighting against the the, uh, angel of Persia, or the ruler of Persia. And when I get done with that, I'm going to go against the, the ruler of Greece. These are angelic authorities. Now, the reason I'm saying that is this, because what God is talking about in Deuteronomy 32 is different. Because it says this, when he separated the nations according to the number of the sons of God, for God's portion is his people, Jacob his allotted heritage, he found him in the desert and in the howling waste of the wilderness. He encircled him, he cared for him, he kept him as the apple of his eye. Which doesn't mean an actual apple. In German it's clear, it's eyeball. The point being is this, God formed a new nation. Isn't that what happens in the wilderness? God promised Abraham, I'm going to make a nation out of you. These people are being formed in the wilderness. Now we have two peoples on the earth. We have the nations and we have Israel, right? Gentiles and Jews. We all know that. I mean, that's basic Bible history. But what it means is there are two different groups of people on the earth. I remember I was working on a freight dock one time and this guy Tony, he, uh, we had to work at the same trailer, and he says, hey, Pierre. I had a beard, right? I have a beard. So he calls me Pierre. I got stuck as long as I worked at that freight dock with the nickname Pierre. I hated that name. Anyway, he says, Pierre, how come God's a Jew? I said, what makes you think he's a Jew? Well, he only has stuff to do with the Jews. I said, well, you know, actually what it was is he chose a guy who is, I guess today, he would have been an Iraqi or, you know, from Kuwait or something like that, right? And he made a nation. But what, he, what you have here is you have two distinct peoples. You have the nations and you have Israel. So what is Israel's purpose Okay, we're talking about the plan of God here. We're going to get to talking about what God's plan for the church is. But you've got two nations here. What is God's plan for Israel? It's to be a light to the Gentiles, right? He was going to take Israel, and they were going to take his word to the Gentile nations. That, that was the plan. What does he say to Abraham? All nations will be blessed from your seed. In your seed, all nations will be blessed. The promise of redemption 
flashes to life again in Abraham. And now that nation that God is making is going to be a light to the world. Now, very interesting scriptures here. Um, It's really plastered throughout the Old Testament. It says in Isaiah (coughs) chapter 55, and you don't have to go there. um, It's saying to the people, I'm going to give you the covenant of David. And the covenant of David is kind of interesting here because it isn't just his offspring being the king and everything. It's he says, behold, I made him a witness to the peoples, a leader and commander for the peoples. And then it says, behold, you shall call nations you do not know. And nations that knew that um, that knew you not shall run up to you because of the Lord your God and of the Holy One of Israel, for he is glorified. You nations are going to be coming to you. Has that ever happened? Visibly in the world? No. And then it gets worse. Because when you get in Zechariah, now I don't know the last time you read Zechariah, you've got to read Zechariah. This is a good plug for the one-year Bible and reading through the Bible every year. You would want to read this every year because there are verses in Zechariah, believe it or not, that are more graphic, actually, in some ways, than Revelation. So it's actually talking about a day in the life of the millennial kingdom. So, hey, what does that look like, Zechariah? And he says so. <coughs> Excuse me, Zechariah chapter 8. Thus is the Lord of hosts, peoples shall yet come, even the inhabitants of many cities. The inhabitants of one city shall go to another, saying, Let us go at once to entreat the favor of the Lord, to seek the Lord of hosts. I'm going. Has that happened yet? How are they going to entreat the, the favor of the Lord of hosts? Many peoples and strong nations shall come to seek the Lord of hosts in Jerusalem. This is a very Jewish thing that's happening here. Nations, Gentiles, are coming to Jerusalem to seek the Lord of hosts. That doesn't normally happen. And to entreat the favor of the Lord. Thus is the Lord of hosts. In those days, ten men from the nations of every tongue shall take hold of the robe of a Jew, saying, Let us go with you, for we have heard that God is with you. (coughs) Excuse me. That has not yet happened on this earth. It will happen in the millennial kingdom. But see, this is what you need to see here, is that God is going to use his people just as he promised to use them. And the nations will interact with Israel in Jerusalem, worshiping Israel's Messiah. And... These things have not yet come to fruition. This is exactly what is going to happen in the millennial kingdom. And then there's another verse here. If, uh, well, I won't even get into that because it's talking about a penalty, actually, if people do not come to Jerusalem from all the nations and take part of the Feast of Booths. Now, it means that this is going to look very, very Jewish, Right? The nations will come to Israel. That's how God designed it all the time. And you know, in the millennial kingdom, we're talking about a thousand years. What happens when you get a hundred years into the millennial kingdom? And you get 500 years in the millennial kingdom, and kids are growing up going, like, who is that guy sitting in that throne in Jerusalem? Do we really need to worship him? See, salvation will still be by faith, won't it? They will still have to come to faith in Jesus as the Jews' Messiah, as the king of the world. 
And they will have memorial sacrifices, but they're strictly memorial to remind people, just like we have the breaking of the bread, to remind people of what Jesus did and how he won salvation for us. So here's the deal. Where does the church fit into that? Because here's what I'm telling you, and this is standard dispensational teaching, whatever that word means, standard teaching from Dallas Seminary and whatever. The church is not in the millennial kingdom at all. We serve Christ during that thousand years, but there is no church in the millennial kingdom. There are no Baptists. I don't know that makes make some of you sad. This is going to really make you sad. There will be no brethren. There will be no church. Israel will be fulfilling what its mission was all the time. So why, what is the church and why in the world is the church the first thing out of the box in Revelation? So here we go. It must have been a happy day. If salvation is coming through the Jews, it must have been a happy day in Satanville. You want to say a happy day in hell, but Satan isn't there yet. But it would have been a happy day in Satanville when the Jews disobeyed God. See, because if the Jews are disobedient to God, they will never be alike to the world. And imagine the joy of pressing the Jews and deluding the Jews and getting the Jews to kill their Messiah. Because with that would come a punishment. Jesus even said it before it happened. He said, you are going, I'm going to, as a result of this, Jerusalem will be ravaged. The temple will be torn down. This is the Olivet Discourse basically right at the beginning of it. The Jews would be dispersed and it has been so. One day before 70 A.D., they were Israel. The next day after 70 A.D., they were Palestine. And there ceased to be a nation of Israel. And just imagine what that means for redemption, if, if salvation really is coming through the Jews. Because what that means is, it's going to take forever for the Jews to get back on their feet and be able to represent God. And then something happened. And what happened was, Ephesians chapters 1 through 3. Because Ephesians chapters 1 through 3 are the birth of the church. Now we can look at those chapters and we can say very happily, I'm glad I'm part of those blessings, being in heavenly places and all this. But if you read the chapters carefully, you understand that the mystery of God for the church, for the plan of redemption, is being explained. Something big happens here. And so imagine then the discomfort of these spiritual entities after Jesus is crucified and they realize that death cannot hold him. What in the world happened? We just crucified that guy. How in the world can he rise again from the dead? And here's what Paul says in, in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 2. But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glorification. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Boy, did they make a mistake. And they knew it immediately after it happened. Because, see, I don't think they really understood what happened, that the incarnation could happen. God could in fact become man. Because if God can become man, and man is totally, this man is totally sinless, and he is a free agent, and he willingly gives his life because he has no sin of his own to bear, he gives his life as a sacrifice for those who are sinful. 
If that could happen, they didn't see that coming. And there's probably a million reasons it was veiled. It was a mystery and all of that. But, you know, you look at what happens, you know, like the Muslims don't accept the Trinity, right? They, they accept Jesus. But here's the deal with Jesus. Jesus was pressed over a human man, smothered his, his spirit. And see, when he got to the cross, Jesus left that man because God can't die. Well, what that meant was that man went to the cross not being a free agent. He was pressed there against his will. Oh, but that's not the incarnation. God became man. And God, therefore, as man, could die for men. They never saw that one coming, but it got worse. It got worse. Because then, there was a time in history that had never been before, but is now, where people could be entirely forgiven of their sins. See, before in the Old Testament, it was, it was a provision. And people couldn't understand why. How in the world can God say, these people over here receive a blessing when everyone is guilty? And I think the spiritual forces thought God would have to violate his own righteousness in doing this. And all of a sudden, there's a group of people who believe in Jesus Christ. They are absolutely sinless before God. That has never happened before. On the face of the earth, and not only that, because they're absolutely sinless, they become immediately indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Now this is trouble in the spiritual realm. This is trouble in the spiritual realm. Because these guys are popping up all over the place, believing in Jesus Christ. And it's like a small army of them. And I can see Satan going and saying, hey, whoa, 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 whoa. I have authority over nations here. Uh, what landmass do they have? They don't have a landmass. Okay, what's, what's their common language then? They don't have a common language. What is their ethnicity? They're all over the place. What do they have in common? Jesus Christ. You know, in Ephesians chapter 2, I don't know about you, but I, I always hit Ephesians chapter 2, and I hit, it, it, it's like you're sliding, you're really going good, I love the first 10 verses, and then you hit these other verses that seem like they don't belong here, but listen. By grace you are saved through faith, and it's not of yourself, it's a gift of God, not of works as any man should boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand for us to walk in them. Remember then at that time, you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by that which is called the circumcision, which was made in the flesh with hands. Remember at that time, you were separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and with God, without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who are once far off have brought, been brought near in the blood of Christ, for he is our peace who has made us both one. He is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing his flesh, the law of commandments and ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man. Or is this just being figurative? He might create in himself one new man? Or did something happen? We know we're a new creation, right? But what Paul is saying in Ephesians chapter 2 isn't just that the hostility has been put to an end. God created a new individual on the planet. The church. And the way we express that is Christian. Christ in you. 
Now, this is just dispensationalism 101. This is, uh, this is uh, the, the foreword of Chafer's theology. A new person had been created. So I'll illustrate that for you like this. A Milwaukee magic trick. Okay? On this hand, you will notice there is nobody. I reach into this pocket and I pull out a Jew and a Gentile. Okay, everybody watch. It's going to happen quickly. Do you see that? This is what we do in Milwaukee to amuse each other. Okay, I pull out another Jew and a Gentile. I could, I could go up and do more, but... It, there's music that goes with that. You know, na-na-na-na-na-na-na-na-na. You put on a little show. But the point is, there are now three groups of people on the planet. This is Chafer, all right? But this is important to realize the church was born at Pentecost. The church is a one-of-a-kind organization. There will never be an organization like this again. In Revelation chapter 5, either at the breaking of that first seal or before the breaking of that first seal, there is no more church on earth. The last time you hear the word church is in, in Revelation chapter 3. The church is gone. God puts a cap on the church. That means the number of those who belong to the church is a definite number. And with the breaking of that seal and the beginning of that 70 week of Daniel, the church's work is done. And see, I tend to be one of those guys that when I look at chapter 5, and you know, this isn't everybody's opinion, and I see that white rider go out, I think that that is Jesus going out to get his own. I think he goes out and gets his own, and some people disagree with that, and that's fine. I mean, we can disagree about stuff like that. But he has given power and authority to conquer, and what is greater than going to earth and getting his own and taking them back into heaven? And some people disagree, and they say, well, whatever that white rider does, he creates a catastrophe on earth, right? You bet it's a catastrophe on earth. So, for example, John and I were talking about this. Now, he's better at math than I am, but I think we're both kind of almost in the same plane, you know, of math badness. And so, here's the thing. If we have 8 billion people on the planet right now, and so if a tenth of them were Christians, would that be like 800 million? Right? Anybody? Yeah, yeah, okay, good. We'll go with that. Well, let's say a tenth of them aren't. Because that just seems like a high number. So if you cut that in half, you got 400 million people on the planet who would be believers in Jesus Christ. So, do you realize that that's more people than there are in the United States? Okay, but not only that, I mean, you've seen the apocalyptic movies, right? Oh, it would be a disaster. Cars would be going like there's nobody in them. That's how my car looks all the time. Anyway, and then... And bikes would be going down the street, and airplanes would be flying without people, you know, all that kind of stuff. But do you realize that God puts his people in important places all over this planet? I remember John one time telling me years ago that even though in, in Muslim countries, they don't like Christians. However, if a position of authority opens up where they really need somebody they can trust... They bring in a Christian because they're trustworthy. Imagine school systems. Imagine civic government. Imagine national government. In this, this debacle we've been going through in this country, imagine what would happen if in one moment God took all believers. 
Oh, it wouldn't just open up vacancies, it would open up vacuums of influence and power. The church is that organization God has put on earth ever since Pentecost to hold back the night. And what's kind of interesting about this is when you read Romans 11, Paul talks about God is going to create a spirit spirit of jealousy among the Jews. And this is how I think, in some sense, the the, uh, rapture is going to work. Because, you know, on the day of Pentecost, you know why the day of Pentecost worked so well? It was a partial fulfillment of what God had prophesied in Joel. That he would pour out his spirit. And when the Jews saw these Galileans speaking in tongues they did not know with, with that Galilean accent, which was very much like a Texas accent from what I understand. They, they were pierced to the heart and they thought, we missed it. We missed it. This is proof we missed it. And Paul talks a lot about jealousy in there. I think that when the Jewish nation sees that these guys had the right Messiah and we're gone, it will pierce them to the heart. Jealousy will turn into repentance. And that will start an avalanche of faith in the Jews. So where does the church fit into that? I think it's real easy. Jesus is starting at the book at the beginning of the book of Revelation by saying to his chosen people who have received a calling. You know in Ephesians chapter 4 when Paul gets out of the mystery of the church part, the first thing he says is I therefore a prisoner of the Lord beg you to live a life live a life worthy of the calling to which you have been called. It isn't just that we're redeemed people in the pile of redeemed people we have been given a special privilege. We have something that no one else on this planet has ever had. Christ living in us in this way that has never happened before. And we have a mission like no other. We understand the plan of God. And you can see what happened in the 17 and 1800s when this starts, stuff started coming to light. It just opened up people's hearts. Christ is coming. And until He comes, we have a job. And when He comes, He will take us to Himself. And when that happens... Israel will rise up and they will fulfill their mission on church. So these two chapters in Revelation are God saying, Folks, wake up. I am your Lord. I stand before you. I have gifted you. I have equipped you. Now go out and do what you are supposed to do. He's just waking the church up because after chapter 3, the church is gone. And so this is our moment in history, folks. He has called the church. He has called you. Not to be a passive force in society. We are to be a dynamic force. That's why we clump together, because we can do more dynamic things in clumps, I guess. I don't know, you know. So, the church at Pergamum. Uh, If you have your Bible, look there. In uh, Revelation chapter 2, uh, verse 12. Okay, we know this. The angel of the church of Pergamum is actually an elder at the church of Pergamum. The angels, they have like uh, instant Wi-Fi. They communicate with each other. We individual, angel means messenger, by the way. And uh, so our Wi-Fi isn't so good. That's why this guy gets a letter. And it says to him, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. 
Now, what's so interesting about this, we, yeah, I mean, you know, all of us who know the Bible, we've heard sharp two-edged sword quite a bit. Not like this, though. This is actually the sword, the two-edged, the sharp. There's an article in front of every one of those descriptors. It's the sword, the two-edged, the sharp. So whatever Jesus is saying to this group of people, um, he's wanting to get their attention. And so in this, he says, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Now, Satan's throne might sound like a franchise operation because it seems like a lot of these churches have Satan's throne going on. But basically what it is in, in Pergamum was a concentration of things. They not only had emperor worship, they had the temple of Zeus there. You know, anybody see the uh, uh, cartoon uh, thing of Hercules, the Disney cartoon where, where the, the kid enters the temple of what he thinks is his dad, you know, according to Zeus? They had a temple of Zeus there. They had a temple where the god looked like a snake. They had all these things going on. It was a place of concentration when the night was really dark and everything. And I think according to this, what Jesus is saying, you need to buck up. You need to be alert. This is not the place to fall asleep. I would say to us, if he was here right now, he would be telling us the same thing. Look at the generation you live in. This is not the time to fall asleep. This is not the time to slide for home. This is the time to wake up. This is the time to be active. This is the time to be alert. They were, they were, they had this challenge, but along with the challenge, there had to be a lifestyle that reflected Jesus Christ and deal with it. And it says here in verse 13, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. You hold fast my name and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my witness, my faithful one who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. Now, I was reading Tom Constable's notes on this, and it was odd that I, I read that this week. Uh, this guy apparently was a dentist. Hmm. And, you know, so I go into the dentist, and you know how you are in a dentist here? You are utterly helpless, right? And you've got your mouth open, he's working, and you, my dentist is having a full-scale conversation with me. And all I could go was, ah. So imagine going into this guy's office if he's a believer. Right? He's got you on the thing. He's got you all the way tilted back. And he's saying, you know, I don't know if you realize this, but, but there is one real God. Jesus Christ. He died on the cross for us. And, they go, and oh yeah, not only that. If you're, you're separated from God because of your... No. And not only that. No wonder they killed him. But he was a witness, right? I was reading some verses this last week about Jesus saying, No one lights a lamp. To hide it under a vessel or under a bed. But they put it on a stand. Let me ask you. Because this is what I think he's saying to these people. Like when you walk into a room. Do you do this? You don't want anybody to see the light, do you? Or you walk into the room like this and you are willing to talk to anyone about Jesus Christ. And let, let's admit it, we're all chickens. But, you know, there's a part of knowing Jesus Christ and knowing who we are as a church and knowing why God has set us on earth and knowing that we have a shelf life that you just say, Lord, send me into this room and if there's anybody I can talk to, I'm not going to see this as a weird circumstance. I'm going to see that you're leading me to have a conversation with this person. No one lights a lamp. And Jesus says this as a warning for his disciples. I think he says this as a warning for us too. 
You've got a light. I gave you a light. You are one of a kind on earth. Let that thing shine. If nothing else, tell them what I've done for you. But I have a few things against you, and I'm going to sum these up pretty quickly because this sounds like other lists here. I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, that they might eat food, sacrifice to idols, and practice immorality. Um, and then look at verse 15. So, so also you have some who hold the, the teachings of the Nicolaitans. Um, you know, these, it's kind of a similar thing going on when he's talking about the immorality. Uh, ba- Balaam taught... Balak, how to make the people of Israel come under God's penalty. Do this to them. Get them to practice immorality and God will judge them. And then the Nicolaitans were, you know, it's a, you know, it's a, it's a nice world. Enjoy it. Do, you know, buy jet skis, do whatever you can. You know, have fun. Don't worry about anything. And the thing is, these flow together. Now, if you want to see this kind of stuff in action, I'm not saying the Nicolaitans were there or whatever. But look at the church at Corinth. Um, chapter 5, you got a guy living with his dad's wife. <clears throat> and the church is silent. Chapter 6, people are taking each other to court. They're practicing immorality. Uh, chapter 8, eating meat offered to idols, which by chapter 10, Paul just displays. He actually he, um, uh, exposes it. For what it was. It was idolatry. You cannot eat at the table of the Lord and at the table of idols. I mean, talk about being embarrassed because Paul puts it out there. Corinth had all of this stuff going. And just to break it down really easy, I think it's this. Satan cannot get God mad at us. He can't get God to be mad at us. He can't get God to curse us. He can't get God to punish us. God's heart is inclined to bless and love us. What father among you, if his child asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly father give good gifts to those who ask him and seek him and knock? But... If he can trick us into walking outside the lines, cheating on our taxes, being involved in pornography, being involved in a million other things, well, God has to judge his own, doesn't he? And what it does is it cripples our witness. How many great Christian men, I mean men that actually I've been impressed with, have killed themselves. You know, right in Pro- if you're reading Proverbs in the one-year Bible, tell me, what have you been reading through? Adultery. Sexual free-for-all. The wild woman of Borneo. We get hung on stuff like that. But not only that, the Nicolaitans, you know, it's like your best, your best life now. Don't worry about it. God's a God of grace. He's going to be kind to you. Man, kick back, enjoy life. Is this the time to kick back and enjoy life? Well, I mean, we're going to, he's going to give us all things richly be enjoyed anyway, but let him be the one to give us that. And we focus our lives on following Jesus Christ and being salt in life. Now, comes the blessing. 
Oh, well, verse 16, can't get away from this one. Repent then, if not, I will come to you soon and war against them, these people, with the sword of my mouth. And the thing that I thought about this is Hebrews 4.12. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the vision of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And before him no creature is hidden, but all are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. I think he's saying, I am going to expose you. Wouldn't that be awful? God walks into Corinth, and he exposes those who are desecrating the Lord's Supper publicly. Oh, some of you are weak and ill, and some have died. Hey, hmm. Should have thought differently about that. You should be judging yourself. You should be checking your own motives. You know, how often have you heard people say, you don't know what I'm thinking. You can't judge my motives. That sharp two-edged sword can. How many men have been caught? I mean, I think of a guy. I mean, I, I read his books on marriage. I mean, this is, you know, this is a guy. And he switches ministries, and he goes and he works for a, a campus organization and everything. And it's like, hallelujah, look, we got a big gun here, a campus organization. They find out why he left his church. It was an affair. I don't think that organization, that campus organization, has been the same since they discovered that. We wreck havoc. And if Jesus was to expose your computer, and he was to expose the books, and he was to expose how you use your time, and he was to expose what you really want out of life. You know, we play a good game on Sunday, but is he really the first love of our hearts? And that would chill me to no end to think that Jesus would walk in and he's going to say, I'm going to expose you, Dan. Boy, I'd be cleaning everything up. Right now you can look at my computer, you know, you can look at my, my cell phone, you can look at all that stuff. But I wouldn't want to be on the bad side of that and know that Jesus is coming in. Why would you fear your Savior and fear exposure? And so this is a friendly warning. Get your life together. Because out of love for you, and maybe out of protection for other people, Jesus will expose you. And then if you, then comes to the reward. I always like the reward parts. To him who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna. Um, is that the commentators were great on this one. Well, what he's talking about is uh, Jeremiah supposedly hid the Ark of the Covenant, and in the Ark of the Covenant, there's a flash that's 2,000 years old that's got manna in it. Do you want any of that? I don't know what kind of salad dressing you put on that stuff. I don't want anything. The hidden manna is what gives you sustenance. See, because this is what the world can't understand. And this is going to happen during the tribulation, which is really kind of cool. Because it talks about the love of the hearts of men growing cold because of the increase of, of deception and the increase of violence and the increase of injustice. But you know what? It says, he who endures to the end will be saved. He's talking to his believers, and he's not saying that you're going to, you're going to be saved uh, 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 in, the, in the way of eternal life. You're going to be saved from damage. And you know why that is? Because Jesus Christ lives in our hearts. You know, and everybody else can say, I'm not sharing that with anybody. Man, resources are low. But a Christian steps out and they give. Why? Because we know that he gives to us. He is our hidden manna. He's the one who allows us to love when love isn't popular. He's the one who allows us to tell the truth when truth isn't popular. He is the one that 
allows us to dare our lives for the sake of other people when everybody holds back. That, folks, is hidden manna. And my verses that I love so much are, He who has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me, and he who loves me will be loved by my Father. And we will come... I will come and manifest myself to him. And then the next verse, He who who loves me is my word, something like that. And uh, my father and I will come to him and we will make our abode with him. They come and they knock on the door. Because you love him. And because you keep his word and your life is solid with him. They knock on the door and you open the door. And there is the son and the father. Ah, the father's holding Chinese takeout. And they come in and have it, well, whatever you envision that, that wonderful thing to be. But what I'm saying is that God promises to do that with us. Wow. And then it says, I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone, which no one knows except him who receives it. And um, the white stone, uh, people don't exactly know what this is, but... Um, Places where you see it are people who have a vote, people who are in uh, positions of authority have this stone to use it, to cast it, to bring judgment, to whatever. You know, it says we're going to reign with him for a thousand years. I mean, some of us are going to be in local governments in different places and, and whatever. I mean, that's how he's going to use people. All you have to do is read Ezekiel to see how certain people are going to get used during the millennial kingdom with a name written on it that nobody knows. And the first thing I thought of in this, because nobody knows what that means either, is the fact that Jesus nicknamed people. I mean, Simon was called Peter the Rock, you know? And James and John were called sons of thunder, you know? And, and I get the idea that there were probably other nicknames too, the Canaanchen or whatever uh, Simon the Zealot was. Canaanchen's a rabbit in German. But, you know, the thing is, what, whatever it was, Jesus gave nicknames. I worked with a guy in Germany. We did these kid camps together, and he gave nicknames to all of his people. You have never seen such a motivated and proud group of people. <coughs> And they were wild names, you know. And the thing is, that's how you knew these people. And it, it built a camaraderie. And the idea here is that when Jesus calls us into service for him, there'll be that thing close with him that nobody else knows. It is a tight, it is a, it is a personal relationship. I don't know, maybe you're going to drive bus during the millennial kingdom. And he gives you a call and he says, Uber, are you there? That's cool. If he nicknames nicknames you Uber, or whatever that will be. But the point is, he's calling us into service and he's promising. So here's what I want to leave you with. You have been called to belong to the church. You are a Christian. In you is forgiveness. In you is the testimony of Jesus Christ. In you is the Holy Spirit. And you have been especially called and fitted for this moment on earth right now. So rather than allow our interests to become diffuse, we are sitting at a time in history where we need more than ever, if you've been watching our government, to be focused on following Jesus Christ, on being salt and light for the people around us, telling them what he has done. And he will live closely with us. The closer you get to him, the closer he lives to you. And he will give you authority, 
you will have a name that no one else knows but Jesus only. And that is an incredible way to live life. I don't know what that does for you. That does a lot for me. And that's what he is calling us to do because of who he has made us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your grace. Um, That seems so trite to say we thank you for your grace. But this is a kindness that none of us here deserve. We do not deserve to be called by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We do not deserve to be the first fruits of his resurrection. The only people on the planet who have ever been indwelt by the Holy Spirit. We are one of a kind, and you're calling us now to make a difference in our world. It's just as Jesus, before the, the starting of that, that 70th week of Daniel, before the tribulation begins, telling this church, come on, guys, wake up. I'm your commander. I'm the one who bought you with my blood. I'm the one who loves you like no other. Please, please follow me. Let's do our job well right up to the end. So, Father, we thank you for all of that. We thank you that we can know our Lord Jesus Christ and love him. We just pray you'd bless us. Help us to think about our lives this week. Help us to see what we can do with salt and light in our worth, our world, carrying the name of our Lord forward. In his name we ask this. Amen.